0: You are listening to National Security Law Today.
1: They were committed to ideas like justice for poor people,
0: racial and gender equality, but they convinced themselves that the revolution would come if they bombed places like the Capitol.
1: This happened in the 1980s, November 7th, 1983. The number one song that day was Every Breath You Take by the police.
0: And the bombers were all women. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security, where our guest is Bill Rosenau, the author of Tonight We Bombed the U.S. Capitol, the Explosive Story of M-19, America's First Female Terrorist Group, from Simon and & Schuster. And I'm Elisa. And,
1: and I'm Yvette. Bill, it's so great to have you here. So let's, uh, let's set the stage, especially for our millennial listeners. Um, today, when you say terrorism, people automatically think about ISIS in 9-11, but what was the landscape of terrorism like from the 1960s to the 80s? And was it more or less of a security problem than it is now?
2: Uh, first of all, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Um, what a wonderful podcast. I'm, I'm thrilled to be uh, be part of it. I'm going to be somewhat heretical and say um, the terrorist threat, particularly in the 1970s, um, was far greater uh, in the United States than it is today. I, not, that's not to say we don't have a terrorism problem. We certainly do, particularly with violent right-wing extremism, um, which is a, a real and, and, and growing threat. But looking just at the, the, the statistics um, from particularly the early 1970s when you literally had, in a single year, um, a couple thousand bombings. Um, in 1974. Not all those were explicitly terrorists, but there was an um, embrace of the bomb and, and the gun in a way that uh, I think most people today find shocking. Uh, I certainly did during the course of researching the book.
1: I will say, um, you know, as a person who didn't live through this particular um, period of time, it was really illuminating to read your book and find out about all of these different you know, bombings that I think if they happened today would, you know, cause a much greater response.
2: Yeah. I wonder if people became almost blasé uh, to the to the, uh, the reality of it. I mean, it was an everyday, almost an everyday occurrence in the early 1970s. And then, of course, you had, uh, which I talk about in the book, you had this Whole sort of uh, firmament of uh, extremist groups. I mean, groups like the Symbionese Liberation Army kidnapped Patty Hearst in 1974. You had the Black Liberation Army, which was an offshoot of the Panther Party, that killed, assassinated at least 15 policemen. Um, you know, including in uh, uh, the Coogan's Bluff area in Upper Manhattan. They put in a fake call. The cops came and they ambushed them and. Uh, assassinated them. Um, so, yeah, it was really, um, it was quite a chaotic time uh, in, our, in, our, in, our, in our history. And I think it just puts uh, to bed this ridiculous notion that somehow this country is more divided than it's ever been, because it's just, it's simply not the case. I mean, there was this period and then there was something called the Civil War. <laughs> Right. Uh, Whatever disagreements we have now compare uh, pale, I think, in comparison to those earlier periods.
1: It is really interesting, too, that you're concentrating in this book mostly on the left wing um, extremists. Right. Like you're talking about uh, like the Weather Underground, um, all of these different groups that were, um, you know, inspired by anti-war efforts. Um, They were inspired by uh, women's liberation equality. Um, There's a a lot of focus on LGBT rights, and they hadn't obviously come as far as we have now with sort of like a more mainstream understanding of how those things should land.
2: Yeah, and I wasn't, um, I mean, I am interested in political ideologies. Um, I don't think I focused on them so much because of their left-wing beliefs, but but simply because of the, the sort of very outlandish nature of the story, which I found quite compelling. I mean, the fact that this was the first terrorist group in American history founded and led by women, um, and the fact that nobody had written about it was just, was absolute catnip for me. So <laughs> that's, that's what really drew it. And the fact that they persisted uh, as long as they did, in fact, into the second Reagan administration. I mean, the Last people were only taken off the street in 1985. So I, I, I was fascinated by this persistence um, of belief, uh, despite the fact that it was clearly evident that the revolution um, wasn't in the offing.
1: And it was catnip to us.
3: So uh, well, let's talk about it. The group at the center of the book, which was the May 19th Communist Organization, was the full name, right? They carried out five successful bombing attacks, uh, not just on the U.S. Capitol, but on other sort of politically symbolic targets like uh, an FBI resident office, an RA, which is one of their smaller uh, offices, and the South African consulate, which resonated in reading it as just trendy in the moment it occurred. Um, And they were involved in other criminal activities like armed robbery and high-profile jailbreaks. So let's talk about, these were these were not all women who had grown up in radical causes, but some of them did,
2: right? Some of them did. Um, one one member uh, was very important character in my book. Judy Clark uh, had grown up as a so-called red diaper baby. Her parents were high-level communist party functionaries in New York um, in the 40s and the 50s. Um, in 1950, in fact, when when Judy. When Clark was very young, her father came home one day and made a, a startling announcement to the family, and he said, kids, we're moving to Moscow. <laughs> now, this this is the height of McCarthyism, the second Red Scare, and Stalin is still alive. But uh, this was, needless to say, a formative experience. The parents came back disillusioned. Um, they eventually left the party. Um, but... Clark really enjoyed the party's warm embrace, and uh, she pretty much kept the faith.
1: And it is, you know, it it was really interesting um, to stick with that theme. Not all of the women grew up as red diaper babies. Some of them had very kind of typical um, backgrounds.
2: Absolutely. Um, Linda Sue Evans, one of the uh, important members of the group, described herself as a corn-fed gal. Uh, she grew up in Iowa, uh, daughter of uh, Republican parents. Marilyn Buck was the daughter of a veterinarian turned Episcopal priest in Austin, Texas. And Maybe
3: I, that traumatized
2: her. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I mean, her father was, was, you know, I guess sort of a progressive. He was involved in civil rights and stuff. But um, yeah, she went to St. Stephen's Episcopal School and got into Brown, but decided to go to Berkeley. Um, you know, most of the people in the group, yeah, we're not, wouldn't describe them as having some kind of, you know, radical upbringing. I mean, I, I guess with the possible exception of of, uh, of Clark.
0: And one other thing that a lot of them didn't have was any kind of military or ballistics or explosives training background, and yet they became these proficient bomb makers. And how did they kind of travel from point A to point B? What did they actually do to carry out these attacks?
2: Yeah, and that's, um, and I, I will admit, uh, that that's a bit of an unanswered question in the book um, particularly the bomb-making part. I, I think that they learned um, from some people in, who had been in the Weather Underground and they moved in some of the the same circles and and learned uh, and learned that way but you know it's kind of remarkable that they didn't kill or injure themselves making uh, making bombs because um, lots of terrorists do. Um, and as far as the weapons uh, went, they you know, they did a lot of uh, small arms training. They did a lot of martial arts stuff, um, and uh, they were quite um, they were very intelligent. Some of the um, retired FBI special agents I, I spoke with uh, had a certain amount of well had a considerable uh, respect for their terrorist tradecraft, um, at least compared to uh, the Weather Underground. Um, they were very smart, capable, uh, professional revolutionaries.
1: Um, another one of the striking things about this story uh, is that they seemed unlikely adherence to terrorist causes, right? A lot of them, you know, sort of started out just kind of marching against the war and, you know, showing up to, um, a lot of them were lesbians. So they were showing up to, um, to, uh, support LGBT rights. And then they just went beyond sort of the mainstream nonviolent movements of the day.
2: Yeah. And this is a, this is a big, um, topic among students of terrorism, academic specialists and stuff, this pathway, many, many people hold uh radical or extremist views Mm -hmm. and never move into actual terrorism and it's sort of the holy grail of terrorism studies to try to figure out why people make that leap why or why they don't make that leap part of the problem is you know from a sort of social science perspective they're just not really enough cases Mm -hmm. uh it's not like talking about ordinary crime Um, where you might have, you know, thousands of of perpetrators, Um, people who become terrorists are relatively few in number, fortunately. Um, But, you know, they they had a variety of, like, terrorists in in other movements. Like, I don't want to compare them to ISIS or the provisional IRA or the Shining Path in Peru, but um, many terrorists feel as though um, their backs are against the wall, Um, they're on the defense, um, they have to attack to survive. They've tried every other means to advance change. And um, violence is, is really their, their their only way out.
1: Right. By contrast, these women had, you know, they were pretty solidly middle class. They were mostly highly educated. You know, they all of them had gone to college. Um, and good
3: colleges. And,
1: and good colleges. They, they had... Um, They didn't have sort of like the um, anomi, right, like the distance between themselves and society that you kind of see as um, one of the things that sparks terrorism or terrorist acts. They weren't occupied in the sense that, you know, one might uh, compare to ISIS or Al-Qaeda, right? So they didn't have those same kind of social pressures that typically uh, develop. Um, when you, or th- that typically result in terrorist activity?
2: Yeah, although um, in in the field uh, of terrorism studies, there are a few, a few um, sort of non-debatable points or, or points that are generally agreed on, and that is, and this applies across time and space, is that terrorists tend to be, well, the women of May 19th were different because terrorism is an overwhelmingly male uh mm-hmm. Perpetrated by males, but terrorists. There, there are a couple of characteristics that terrorists around the world share. They tend to be better educated uh, than the general population. They tend to be from more prosperous backgrounds. Um, that that poverty per se doesn't appear to contribute um, to terrorism. I mean, if it did, a place like like Haiti would be would be a a, a, a wellspring of terrorism, which of course it's not.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think um, for the leaders, certainly the architects like Osama bin Laden, some of the major terrorists, um, they they were either uh, middle class or upper upper class backgrounds. Carlos the
3: Jackal, he was also exactly. a wealthy guy.
1: Um, but they're able to um, use the politics of the day, such as poverty or not being able to find jobs in order to recruit, like ISIS does this.
2: Yeah, and also maybe the difference is, you know, I, I, I'd consider... Um, Al Qaeda, at least at the peak of its powers, or or ISIS or, Shining Path, as, as a series of kind of interlocking insurgencies, sure. They're they're really like very they're unconventional, but they're very large scale. I mean, these are these are mass movements. The kinds of groups we've been talking about, um, you know, the Weather Underground, May 19th, and their contemporaries in Europe. Oh, the exact contemporaries. Um, Red Army Faction, Brigada Rossi in, in um, Italy, Axion Direct in, in, in France. Um, Meinhof would be... Meinhof as the, yeah, the, the sort of the um, the original seed of the Red Army Faction in West Germany. These were, these movements were, were tiny. Um, the, 20 these members, were, 30 members, yeah.
3: something like that, not like 10,000. No, they, they, that, they weren't right? mass
2: movements. In fact, they were they were, uh, much to their annoyance, they were, they were pretty much disengaged from even extreme left politics because even people on the extreme left tended to consider them to be, you know, unhinged, politically uh, incorrect, um, possibly dangerous. Um, and May 19th experienced that. Um, they, they complain internally about, well, you know, how come nobody on the left is supporting our, our, our actions?
1: Right, because they, you know, they kept moving further and further towards violence, and not, you know, and specifically targeting cops. Right, like most people will believe strongly in something, but not strongly enough to kill another person. So, in the '80s, uh, the Reagan administration got a, aggressive on defense and foreign policy, uh, and that included a stepped up response to terrorism. As we've alluded to earlier, we've ha- they had a series of like, um, by September 11 standards, smaller bombings, but, you know, more frequent, right? The US Capitol itself was bombed. This FBI building was bombed. Um, and so in, in 81, the Senate set up a special terrorism subcommittee. Uh, and under Reagan, the FBI was unleashed to investigate and prosecute domestic terrorists. What was it about that moment that led to those changes? And, how did the FBI use its this, these increased powers to finally catch up with most of these members of May nineteenth?
2: It was interesting. Um, I think at the at the sort of the highest levels of government, I mean the president and his top lieutenants, there was a belief um, in something called the terror network. There was a, a writer named Claire Sterling who posited that terrorism everywhere was actually traceable back to Moscow and the Soviets, and this was a, a just. A war and a different, using a different technique. Um, they very much saw it in this in this Cold War lens, and as you know, defeating terrorism was part and parcel of defeating the Soviet Union. Um, but I think down um, and then, actually, May nineteenth uh, played a role um, in this heightened, uh, certainly FBI and federal interest in terrorism. I should add parenthetically so. In 1980, um, the FBI created an institution which we still have—the Joint Terrorism Task Forces—which grew out of. Uh, they were, it was originally founded to investigate bank robberies around New York City, that had been perpetrated by some of the characters in my in my book, um, former members of the Black Liberation Army, and then kind of morphed into this this interagency counterterrorism force. Um, but it was the, the Brinks robbery on October 20th, um, 1981 that I think really energized the Bureau um, because here here you had, you know, two policemen murdered, uh, a Brinks security guard uh, murdered. Um, you had this apparent alliance between these radical lesbians and, and black militants and, you know, Puerto Rican extremists. And, uh, you know, it looked like there was this, Real violent underground that they had been completely unaware of, um, but it's interesting because Judge Webster, in the early 1980s, who was the, the FBI director, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, um, he he didn't really buy into this sort of apocalyptic view that people on the Senate subcommittee, people like Senator Jeremiah Denton um, and others, held. Um, he 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 seemed to, he wanted to treat that. I mean. The, Particularly in the Senate subcommittee, there was a lot of really, in in my mind, um, you know, as as a civil libertarian, I suppose, you know, a a real um, concern about uh, you know rooting out subversion and investigating these dark forces that were supporting terrorism, and a very broad, expansive view of what um, what what sort of. (laughs) <laughs> powers the federal and state government should, should exercise. And Webster, I don't think, really bought into that. I mean, he, he beefed things up. There was the, the JTTFs. They created the, the, um, the rapid response team, the, the, the hostage rescue teams. HRTs, right. HRTs. They did a lot. They beefed up analysis. But he was pretty insistent on treating this not as this sort of pol- terrorism, as sort of this political crime, but really as just crime. and and viewing it really through this kind of prosecutorial and law enforcement um, lens, which I think, and I think that applies today, is the right response to terrorism.
1: I think reading this book, it was really surprising how many um, things are consistent. The same arguments are very consistent, right? Like how to approach terrorism, you know, what is an appropriate response when you're upset with your government. These things are like you know it 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 could have been about today reading this book, which is why I think it's so relevant
2: yeah I think they they're, they're kind of there's some enduring patterns um, I think um, you know obviously times are different and as a historian i I'm, I'm very reluctant to try to draw any sort of obvious lessons from the past, but I think looking at the way we responded to this kind of terrorism i mean. The FBI and and um, state and local authorities, including the the uh, New York Police Department, were actually ultimately, I think, pretty effective um, in dismantling these groups. They weren't able to use the full range of techniques um, that we have today. They weren't able, for example, to infiltrate May 19th. It was just too small and, and, and too closed off. But they... We're pretty good at dismantling them and groups like groups that were probably even more dangerous, the FALN, um, uh, the Armed Forces of National Liberation, the Puerto Rican uh, separatist group that actually did did kill people, <laughs> uh, including policemen.
3: And then some iteration of that had been around at that point for 50 years, right? They had done that even, I think, over in front of the White House at one point. Yeah,
2: and from and from in in the uh, House chamber.
3: Yeah, that that's the most incredible thing. The idea of somebody getting into the House chamber today with any yes. kind of a serious weapon, it just strikes me as impossible.
0: I think that actually leads in really directly to a question I had, which was the changing levels of security, especially in our government buildings. You know, today, as we just said, we think about the security of the Capitol and not just the Capitol, but an FBI office, even if it's a smaller one or a consulate or any other uh large symbolic organization very differently than we did in the 80s. And I wonder how much you think that this event, this bombing by the May 19th organization contributed to the way we consider the security of our major institutions.
2: I think 9-11 was obviously hugely transformative in, in, in that respect. But you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, these security measures started to come in, really started to come in in the 70s and the 80s. Um, the Weather Underground had bombed the Pentagon, for example. You used to be able to just walk into the Pentagon, which is kind of amazing. Can't even get close <laughs> to it nowadays. Um, and you know, bringing in metal detectors. Um, you know, after the, the the spate of hijackings in the in the late '60s and early 1970s and all kinds of setbacks and bollards, it it was definitely an outgrowth of this this period. Um, you know, it was a it was a sort of a Gentler, maybe more naive time before then, um, and if you want to talk about, like for example, the furlough of uh, one of the characters in my book, as an example of uh, the 1970s being a, a perhaps more uh, naive, certainly a different time.
3: We'll talk about
2: that. Yeah, should we?
3: Yeah, yeah, sure. sure. Mm-hmm.
2: One one of the just fascinating characters in my book, Marilyn Buck uh, from Austin, Texas. Um, Got involved. I mean, she was involved in Students for Democratic Society, where she endured a lot of uh, a lot of sexism that I recount in the book. Some of it pretty hair-raising. Um, wound up as a radical filmmaker, uh, and then went back to the Bay Area, where she got together with the Black Liberation Army, and she was what the press described as the the only white member of the Black Liberation Army, and. Um, it, you know, it's a little—it's not far-fetched. I mean, but the Black Liberation Army was was a pretty loosely structured organization. But as I said a few minutes ago, they—they—they they, they killed cops. They had this incredible assault on the Ingleside um, precinct house in San Francisco in I want to say 1971. Nine guys with shotguns. They laid out this uh, policeman. Killed him. Uh, shot another woman, uh, set off bombs. I mean, just complete mayhem. So Buck was um, very involved with them. And one of her jobs, she was sort of the quartermaster. And being this nice, um, tall, well-spoken uh, Anglo-Saxon gal from Austin, Texas, was able to move um, move around and to accomplish things that might have been more difficult for um, African-American Militants. So she rented safe houses, she drove getaway cars, and she got guns and ammunition. And um, in 1973, 72 or 73, she made a mistake. She bought, she would go to Arizona and California, different states to buy weapons and, um, and, and ammunition, uh, always with fake ID. She used a fake ID. Someone caught her using a fake ID to buy a thousand rounds of ammunition. <laughs> which I guess buying fake, I learned buying ammunition with a fake ID is a federal offense. She
3: yes, yes, it is, Bill. Yes, it is. It's <laughs> a serious <laughs> offense. Yes, it
2: is. She, um, some of her supporters said, oh, well, she drew a 10-year sentence for buying a, you know, a box of cartridges. Well, no, it was more than that. It was It was a shopping cart of stuff. So she got a 10-year sentence at the... Uh, federal women's prison in Alderson, West Virginia. Um, She uh, got sent there and then a couple of years later she applied for a furlough. Federal prisoners could get furloughs back in the the good old days. She got a furlough, a six-day furlough, to visit her parents. She visits her parents it's so basically back.
3: like a shopping trip. You can take a vacation. Yeah. Right. For some From of the, our listeners who may not understand exactly what that was. That is no kidding. This really happened. Right. Really the, no. And
1: it, the idea was, you know, it was rehabilitated, exactly. right? right. So exactly. So it's it, it's, uh, it's something that we do in order to make sure that these people are ready to be reintegrated into right. society. Precisely. Right? So it, it
2: wasn't, yeah, I. I, I and I don't, I mean, I mean, it was a sincerely held belief in rehabilitation, which I think we've sadly... Uh, sadly lost um but so the following year she applied for another one and uh she said oh i want to go visit my lawyer in new york so this was 1979 and uh she never came back so she was on the run on the lam until uh 1985
3: so i do have a quick question for you about these personalities that get involved in this And, and one of the things is we've talked a little bit about what happens to these people? You've used a couple of phrases, and you refer to some of the things that psychologists say. So um, one of the things is uh, they've talked about moral disengagement, this mm. phenomenon of moral disengagement that occurs. Um, talk a little bit about that. Like, what is that and what happens? And I think you also used the word cult.
2: Mm. Yeah. Um, well, moral disengagement, as I understand it is this process, um, and it doesn't apply particularly just to terrorists. Um, It can apply to ordinary criminals. It can apply to soldiers. Um, It's the process by which you sort of dehumanize your enemy to the point where um, that person is um, available to be to be killed or injured, right? The, you, 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 you were morally disengaged, you checked out of that, those norms and, um, and beliefs, and have kind of prepared yourself mentally to commit um, an act of, of violence or some other you know hideous crime. Um,
3: and I think part of this was you developed language to refer to this yes. so that they become an abstraction, which we've seen in the racial context of this country, but we've also seen it with you know, skinnies in Somalia Oh yeah, referring. Mm-hmm. To. But in this case, re- they were referring to police officers as pigs. Yes, which was very popular. I think to do at that time. Yep, um, um, and
2: it wasn't, you know, just May nineteenth. I mean, you know, all kinds of uh, Americans use that um, offensive term. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's very hard for humans to kill each other with without some kind of fairly significant. I'm not talking about self defense, but. You know, some kind of significant mental preparation. I don't think we're hardwired for, for, for murder. So, you know, you, you reduce your enemy to a class enemy, a racial enemy, a subhuman, you know, a pig, a rat. Um, and I think that's that's, that's that process. Um, May 19th, like a lot of other terrorist groups, underground organizations, um, really developed this kind of hothouse atmosphere, all the information that comes in is filtered to the group. You exist for the group and the group alone. The idea of defecting or surrendering becomes absolutely unacceptable. Um, it's it's the equivalent of of treason. Um, and, and
3: you've invested. I think you mentioned that you've just invested so much of your life in this. Yes. Resume. To walk away from it is to say you've messed up so much. You've lost a decade, two decades. Yes. You have no resume other than Bob Maker. What else are you going to?
1: do. Well, but, one of the things that I really, uh, um, you know, found to be illuminating was to the extent that you could, you gathered information about how these groups operated. Um, the the, uh, the members of May 19th, when they were eventually interviewed, they were usually reticent about discussing the inner workings, but you were able to piece together some really interesting things, such as the, you know, the, the self-criticism that they would sit around and 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 do i think like that led directly to some of their their shift in their morality
2: yeah i mean this and, and that's i'm glad you mentioned criticism self-criticism uh, an old maoist practice um where you you know in front of the group talk about you know your failings your you know your inabilities as a revolutionary it's apparently horrible it goes on it would go on for it may 19th I and mean, you go on for hours and hours um and that's a kind of a cult like thing to do. It's, I mean, one of the ways I was able to reconstruct this, and absolutely critical. So, there are two things. Um, shout out to the FBI uh, Freedom of Information Act officer I dealt with. Uh, she was wonderful. She steered me in the right direction many times. I got literally thousands and thousands of pages of. FBI case files, um, so that was that was huge in terms of trying to get into the inside the group. Um, but the other thing were um, uh, were court records of, of uh, from federal trials because and there were a whole series of trials that May 19th members um, had in places like um, in in Newark, in um, in Connecticut, uh, New York, and Pennsylvania, and the various. Um District courts there, and there's you know the National Archives and Records administration um, is meticulous in keeping those uh, those court records, and it was absolutely uh, invaluable and the other <laughs> if you don't mind me talking about my my methods or the the, the research <laughs> too much um, two of the members uh, donated their papers to colleges so. Susan Rosenberg, who was a very important member of the group, donated her papers to Smith College, and I spent a wonderful week up there. And another person, Alan Berkman, MD, um, his widow donated uh, his papers to the Columbia Medical School, to their archives. So I was able to go up there and paw through those, and I found things like his unfinished autobiography. So, <laughs> needless to say, uh, yeah, I wasn't able to get directly inside the group, but I think I got I got pretty close.
1: But you, and you talk about kind of the tension between uh, living underground and being anonymous and not uh, not being discovered, but also the compulsion that these terrorists had to write de- things down. Right, like they wrote their. Autobiography because they envisioned themselves as being, you know, the leaders of these movements, and they wanted to be able to have a historical record, which was right. really interesting. To be
3: vindicated one day as having always been right, right? Maybe. Yeah,
2: and I think it was, it, it served some kind of, I don't want to say psychological need, but social need. I mean, they were, these people were most of them very well educated. They were intellectuals and um, what did intellectuals like to do other than like discuss and and write and so literally i i'd have this document that like a document seized during a raid on one of their apartments um which would then become bannered into evidence eventually in in the trials uh like a 20-page single-space screed that (laughs) was basically even though i'm a student of the stuff i couldn't get my mind around it. It reminded me of stuff that the Red Army faction and the Red Brigades used to write. Totally sclerotic, uh, opaque, obscure. But I think it, you know, as intellectuals they had to get that stuff out. They had to get it out there. They had to, they had to think and write. Um, and I think that was a, a big impulse. And, and also as a form of self, self-justification. You know, we're not just criminals. We're doing this for real reasons. Yeah, and what's Beyond interesting too game. is
3: you have to wonder if in a digital age any of that would really happen. You know, and there would be so many communications that would be acquired probably by law enforcement or intelligence. Um, but these people were keeping these records. It also strikes me as being book smart and not practical. You're yes. leaving evidence Everywhere. behind all over the place, um, and you've persuaded yourself. That you know you're so right, and everything's you know everything's going to work out. That never even occurs to you that your actions are just clearly in violation of federal law, and your motives aren't really going to be at issue. You're, you know, you're blowing things up, and that's not going to work for anybody. That was amazing.
2: Yeah, I mean they they were you know they they had good terrorist tradecraft. I mean they were never infiltrated. They were masters of disguise. They um, were really good at creating not just fake IDs, but Phony federal search warrants. Yeah, that, were, that was uh, what,
1: something.
2: DEA IDs. IDs.
1: And they flew under the wire because they, they were
2: women. And they were women. So, <laughs> and, and so <laughs> and
1: I mean, that's an they, they were all white women. I mean, there right. were
3: there. This was not a diverse group necessarily.
2: No. Yeah, it's pretty much. The number one rule for uh, terrorists: don't write anything down. <laughs> like the IRA would would put a bullet in your head if you wrote something down. Um, and but they couldn't help themselves. And literally during the raid in 19, May 1985 in their safe house in Baltimore, the police and the FBI took out filing cabinets <laughs> full of things. I mean. I mean this, yeah.
1: But I did want to come back to this um, this point that uh, Elisa was making about privilege, right? So they specifically said they were conscious of privilege in the way that we understand it today, right? They were explicitly treating their privilege as being white and, you know, not the female part, but definitely being white. And that's why they were aligning themselves with Puerto Ricans and, you know, black people and separatists and all of these people who really felt disaffected. They said, well, we have the ability to carry these causes forward as a, as a, you know, as a virtue of our being in a privileged position.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And they saw, um, yes, they had a privilege. They saw themselves as having that privilege that you just described very, very cogently, but also having this responsibility. I mean, here you are. You're um, a well-educated, intelligent, prosperous, uh, right-thinking person inside the belly of the American beast, Mm -hmm. and if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. What are you doing? What what are we doing to help these liberation struggles in South Africa, in the Middle East, um, Puerto Rico, uh, Central America? We we have uh, we have a particular responsibility as Americans inside this, um, this, this at, at, the, at the heart of what they consider to be the empire.
1: Totally. and But on the other side, they also felt marginalized for, you know, as women, even in the left movement, they experienced sexism. Um, and even, you know, and as lesbians, right, they felt like they were outside of society as well. So it was really interesting, and at once they felt privileged, but also marginalized.
2: Yes, in fact, Laura Whitehorn, graduate of uh, Radcliffe College, she, um, in a later interview, she said, um, you know, my lesbianism made me a better anti-imperialist. I immediately, as, as an outsider, I felt um, at one with other people who were oppressed. And that was from a pretty young age. That's pretty
3: fascinating. Yeah, now, is. you know, one of, the, um, one of the things that I think readers are going to like... Um, but the last quarter of your book, and sort of where, where did they end up? What happened? We won't get into that right now in too much detail. Don't give away too much. But give us one anecdote on how it ended for one of these bombers. One,
2: one is too good to tell. Judy Clark is too good to tell. And, of course, her name is Judy. Judy <laughs> um, They wound up. Um, I mean, one of the men, actually, um, Alan Berkman, the doctor, wound up as a professor at the Columbia Public Health School, and he was, a, he was an AIDS activist, um, you know, died of lymphoma, um, very revered guy in sort of AIDS-related public health uh, issues.
3: All right, I think we have to stop there. Though well, It's been really great to have you. Thank you so much for coming in. We hope that you'll come back in the future. I'm sure you're going to write other things, so don't forget us. Um, and for our readers, uh, for our listeners, I'm sure you're going to want to read this book, so we're going to do you a favor. We're going to hyperlink it in the notes to the podcast so that you can find it.
1: And I listen to it on audiobook, on Audible, so you can, you know, there's no excuse to miss this, uh, this really fascinating and surprisingly timely book. Uh, tonight, we bomb the U.S. Capitol, the explosive story of M19, America's first female terrorist group, by Bill Rosenau. Bill, thank you so much for coming.
2: It's really been great. Thank you.
1: So, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at slash NAT security and in the notes of this podcast.
0: And we'll be back next week with more content for you. And remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Drop us
3: a note at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org or follow us on Twitter at
0: ABA, NATSEC, and on Facebook. Hey, we welcome your feedback anytime.
1: See you next time on National Security Law Today.
0: And unless you thought we'd let you off the hook without a legal disclaimer, please remember that the attorneys hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the black letter laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA MadSec.